We began last time looking at the first chapter of John in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. We took a pass at this verse, these two verses here, and talked about the whole idea of the internal evidence that you have when you're born again. And I'll tell you, my heart was just really stirred going over those things that God does within us because He's going to continue to do those things within me. That's what excites me so much. Not only are they just birthmarks internally when you begin to walk with God, but those same things are stirred and worked within you throughout your Christian life. So we talked about the fact here in looking at verses 12 and 13 that you are born again with an internal evidence as a child of God. It's interesting to me the magnitude of the internal change that you have here in front of us in these verses. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The magnitude of the change that takes place internally when you become born again is so great that it can only be described in terms of birth, who were born, and the end of the verse 13, of God. It might interest you also to note that this is the first time the new birth is spoken of by name in the Bible. Jesus is going to talk about it more in chapter 3, but here is where it is specifically articulated for the first time, and we're already beginning to, as you can tell, run across great nuggets that we have in the Gospel of John that are not articulated elsewhere. Hinted at it, yes. Implied, yes. But often articulated by John in a way that is just absolutely profound. We have already seen many things like that in chapter 1. Now, looking at these two verses again, we're talking here about being born again. And the title of this message is, How to Receive Jesus Christ. And I suggested to you three thoughts here from this passage last time. You are born again with an internal evidence. We've already talked about that. You are born again by the will of God, or I would like to phrase it this time, the grace of God. And you are born again by receiving Him. So born again with internal evidence, born again by the grace of God, and born again by receiving Him. These are the things that we are talking about here, and we have already discussed the internal evidence. So I'd like to move on now by talking about this whole matter that we are born again by His grace. And really, I just want to understand what is here in the text in terms of some of these phrases. He says in verse 12, "...as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God." to those who believe in his name, and then this, who were born. Now here's the new birth. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a great statement of the grace of God. To be born of God, to be given the right to become a child of God, is nothing but sheer grace. There is... Nothing here, when we come to verses 12 and 13, that indicates God owes us anything. In fact, there's nothing in the whole Bible that would indicate God owes us anything. God owes us absolutely nothing. And yet, He has found it in His heart to give us the privilege, the right, to become His children. So again, I say this is a statement of sheer grace here. And John is giving us, as he will go on to do, an exalted view of salvation by letting us know right here up front in chapter 1 that salvation is all of grace. It is all of God. 
This is a very protective statement as you look at it. Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It is very protective in this sense. What he basically does in this statement is he fences in the doctrine of the new birth. He very carefully guards it. He's emphatic about where it does not come from. And he is very enthusiastic about where it does come from. So he lists off these things, and I'd like to look at them one by one and just explain what they mean. If you read commentaries on this section, you'll find many, many different opinions. I read many different commentaries and ran up against all of those, but I'll just tell you what I think it means. He says here, you are not born again through blood. Here's the first part of the fence he puts up to protect this doctrine of the new birth. You are not born again through blood. What does that mean? Well, actually, the original Greek says you are not born again through bloods. It is bloods, plural. I think it's so weird sounding that that's why it's not translated that way. It just would simply throw everybody off. You are not born again of bloods, plural. The idea here is that your new birth as a child of God has nothing to do with your nationality. That is the idea. Not born again of blood or of bloods. This is a direct hit, you might say, at the Jewish dependence on Abraham. Don't forget the heritage this man has growing up in Galilee among his Jewish people. This is directly aimed at the Jewish dependence on Abraham. And what John is doing here is reaching out to his countrymen. He is saying, listen, for all of you that are depending on Abraham as your heritage and thinking God is your father because Abraham is your father by blood, you're not born again that way. You cannot be. And if you look at John 8, and we'll get there eventually, John 8, 38 through 44, he talks about that very thing. Jesus has that very problem with the religious leaders right there, where he's telling them about the new life, and they're saying, oh, Abraham's our father, therefore God's our father. And he says, oh, no, you're all very greatly mistaken. And first of all, God is not your father. And he gets around to telling them that the devil is their father, even though Abraham by blood is their father. So this was a major problem, and John is getting at it right in the beginning here. It is another move toward those who have also a blood connection to godly people. Those who could say, I stand in the long line of godly people. I stand in the long line of those born again. And I have been birthed into a family. My father was a Christian. His dad was a Christian. My great-grandfather was a Christian. My great-great-grandfather. And those who might look to that and say, Therefore, because I basically believe these things too, I'm born again. No, you're not. You're not born again by any blood connection. That's the point. Not by nationality and not by a heritage of godly people who are connected to you by blood. So you're not born again through blood. And then he says, you are not born again by the will of the flesh, nor the will of the flesh. What is this? Well, I think this is basically the thought that you cannot be born again by the efforts and the exertions of your own heart. Being born again causes you to come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's light. And the Bible calls it being translated from one kingdom to the next. You're suddenly by an act of God moved from one kingdom to the next. You cannot just will that to happen by your own natural heart, by your own natural thinking. Further, I'll go further, and the Bible is very clear. You cannot even move toward Christ and understand the things of Christ as they're preached to you without the aid of God. You cannot just will yourself into the kingdom of heaven with your own natural efforts. You must have the enlightenment of God. 
And those of you that really are born again can look back when God began to enlighten you. When you began to be intrigued with the things of Jesus Christ and your heart began to be engaged and then your mind and you found yourself thinking all the time about Jesus Christ and God and these matters, that is because on your own you could never cause yourself to be born again. 1 Corinthians 2.14 is very clear about this. It says that the man without the spirit or the natural man, the man who's not born again, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. In fact, those things are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Without the aid of God, you cannot be born again. So you're not born again by your bloodline. You're not born again by some act of your own will. You cannot move up and look at God and Jesus Christ and just decide to move on in all on your own. It's impossible. In Jeremiah 13, 23, I love this verse. It says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So it is in the new birth. You cannot change yourself. God must come and change you. So he goes further and he says, You are not born again by the will of man. Some of these seem to say the same thing, but they're not. Who are not born of blood or the will of the flesh nor the will of man. You know what this is saying? This is saying that no other man can confer grace upon you. I can talk to you until I'm blue in the face. I can preach to you until my voice goes away. I can corner you and I can tell you everything in the Bible. But I cannot reach into you and regenerate your heart. I cannot do that. Another man or woman cannot regenerate you. It's not possible. They cannot hook you up to a machine. They cannot plug you into a Bible and have it read into your ears and go into your heart. God must reach into your heart. So no man can put you into the kingdom. No ordained minister, no lay minister, no priest. None of these people can do it. Only God can do it. And so he says then, in conclusion, you are born again by the will of God. What he is saying is this, salvation is all an act of God. All an act of God. And I don't know how that strikes you, but to me that is the most soothing truth that I can hear as a Christian. Salvation is all an act of God. It is entirely by God's grace from the start to the finish. That great Lutheran commentator, Linsky, put it this way. He said, every gospel imperative is full of the divine power of grace to effect what it demands. If it counted on even the least power in the sinner, it would never secure even the least effect. You see, what we're talking about here is the fact that man is totally depraved on his own. He has fallen into the darkness and he cannot find his way out. Even if he knew the way out, he couldn't get there because he doesn't have the strength to do it until God comes along and quickens him because you're dead. The Bible says in trespasses and sins, and a dead man cannot make any moves at all. So it is all an act of God from start to finish. In Titus, we are studying Titus. Could you turn over there just for a moment to Titus chapter 3? It's put so well here by Paul how it's all an act of God and His grace and His Spirit toward us. You see, this is so important because this is where it all begins. If you're off here and you don't understand right in the beginning that salvation is all of grace and all of God and all a gift, then you're going to be trying to make some contribution along the way to somehow keep it yours 
to somehow keep God's favor. And your church work might be very zealous to sort of keep God happy about you. So just in case he was wondering along the way about tossing you out, just in case he was wondering, he can look and say, Oh, but look at all this involvement. Well, all right, I changed my mind. I'll let him go to heaven after all. Don't like him that much, but I'll let him go after all. Know this. Not one thing you do after you become truly born again, not one thing you do causes you to go to heaven. You go to heaven because Jesus Christ comes and rescues you in your sinful condition and promises to personally take you there himself. Now, we have had many Bible studies on how there will be fruit in the life if you're really born again. And we talked last time in Titus about how the Bible's designed to change you. We talked about how salvation is designed to make you godly. So all those fruits and all the work is going to be there. But none of that puts you into heaven. You're put into heaven by God alone through the blood of Jesus Christ. You must understand that. You must have it down in your heart and down in your mind. Otherwise, as soon as you fail, as soon as you get wayward, you're going to start questioning everything and the devil's going to rush in and take his favorite verses like Hebrews 6.6. 6. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened if they fall away to be renewed. Have you noticed that's one of his favorite verses? I know. He uses it on everybody. He's got about three or four favorite verses he uses. I'm not so sure he knows anymore sometimes. He uses those so many times on people. But when you fail, he'll rush in with those and oh, you moan and you groan. You have to understand how it works and you must understand if you have the internal evidences or not. From there you go on and enjoy your life with God and let God work in your life and change you according to his will as you yield your life to him. But Titus 3 sums all of this up. Verse 4, he says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Boy, that is a lot of truth. I'm thinking of how many messages that's going to be when we get to Titus. But you see, it sums it all up. Salvation is all of God. Why are you born again? Because God wills it to be so, and He wills it to be so because He loves you so much. Now you understand, if you're truly born again, how safe you are. So you're born again with internal evidence. You're born again by the grace of God. Let's go on now, back to John, to verses 12 and 13, and talk about how you're born again by receiving Him. And there's so much confusion on this. You know, we use the term, accept the Lord. I don't have a problem with that term if you understand what you're doing and you do it biblically. If it means to receive the Lord, if that is what you mean, and you mean it in the context of how we're going to look at it, I don't have a problem with that. But if you talk about, I'm going to accept the Lord, and you just add Him to your life and nothing changes, He just becomes a bumper sticker on your car or something, then I have a problem with that. Let's talk about what it means to receive Christ you are born again by receiving Him. And I want to hit this from a number of different angles as we look at the text. John 1, 12. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right. We've been talking about that. To become the children of God. But look at this. But as many as received him. It is interesting to me that he says that where he does. Because if you look back up at verse 10, it says this tragic news. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. And your heart aches when you read that. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And your heart aches when you read that. But know this, that is not John's focus. That's a little bit of bad news along the way, but it's not his focus. His focus is the fact that there are many who have received him, who are receiving him, and he's encouraging us with that truth. There are many who are receiving him even now, all over the world. Think of that. All over the world, people are bowing their heads, opening their hearts. Some of them are in prayer rooms. Some of them are standing in line at a crusade and praying a prayer in a great crowd. Others are on their knees in a hotel room. Some are just sitting in the middle of a Bible study and God has opened their heart and they're saying, Yes, Lord, I want you to forgive me. I turn from my sins. Yes, Lord, I want you to be my king and govern over me. Yes, you are my priest. You are the only one who can forgive me. They're being born again right where they sit. I've talked to so many in our church who right as they have been sitting during the message, God opens their heart and they just say yes to God and embrace Jesus and their life entirely, completely changes right right as they're sitting there. And then the proof is there weeks and years afterwards. It isn't the posture, it isn't the aisle, it isn't the prayer card, it isn't any of those things. Those are all nice techniques and God uses them all. It is what have you done in your heart? Have you received Him? And what is your heart? It isn't the ticker in here. It isn't the thing pumping in here. It is the very center of your being. Don't lose sight of that. It is opening up from the very center of your being and saying, Yes, God, my dear Creator, who created me for your good pleasure, may you have good pleasure in me and my life from now on, and may your will be done, and may your kingdom come. You're born again by receiving Him. There are many who are receiving him, thinking of it all over the world right now. That encourages my heart. John's encouragement here for evangelism, in contrast to those who did not receive him, is writing about the grace of accepting Christ in the truest sense. And I want to say this. This truth should be encouraging you. Even now as I'm talking, you should be encouraged. Yes, there are many that are receiving him. And and go further in your thinking and realize this. God is using people to reach these that are receiving Him. He's using people to reach them. I think we need to be more mindful of how God used people to reach us, to bring us to the point of receiving Jesus Christ. We need to be more mindful of that and get out there and let God use us to reach the others that are waiting. Do you realize there's people waiting? They're just waiting. I have worked in orchards many times in my life. I've had my seasons of orchard work. And I remember one time we worked so hard on the peaches up in Dayton, Oregon. We went through and clipped every bit of dead wood off the trees. And we worked so hard that the trees, the following season, bore a bumper crop, the biggest crop they'd ever had in this orchard of peaches. And the great thing about being a worker in the orchard was that, yes, we would take the peaches and pick them a little green and sell them on the stands out on the street and take them, you know, out to market and all of that. But us workers... We got to leave, we would eye those peaches on the trees. And we'd leave those big, fat, select ones till they were just so ripe. You barely touch them and they fall into your hand. You bite into them and they taste like candy. 
They're so ripe. They're just ready. They're waiting. There's people like that out there. They've gone through it. They're sick of the emptiness of life. Maybe you're one of them tonight. Just sick of it. You've tried it. You've had the money. You've had the immoral sex. You've gone the full route. You've had all the drugs you could possibly take and still be alive. And you're sick of it. Well, you're ripe. You're ready. There's many people like that out there in the world. They're just waiting for someone to come along and say, Are you sick of it? Do you want to really be filled? You want to know how? It's Jesus. And there are those people that won't put up a fight. They'll say, Really, can you tell me more? You know, I kind of had a little belief here and there and whatever. But oh, and, and how, how do I receive Him? Well, you see, that's exactly what we're talking about. God wants to use you to go out and reach these people. Not everybody's going to fight you. Now, the ones that want to put up a fight, fine. Thank you very much. The Bible says, you know, give them the full gospel and move on to the next one. Shake the tree a little bit. See which ones are ready. There's nothing as thrilling as just beginning to share with someone and they're, they're beginning to smile. And you're thinking, well, they're not even going to argue with me. And then you go on. I remember talking about how if you don't have the gift of evangelism, you're not Mr. Bold or Mrs. Bold, that you could go out and pray for God to lead you to these ripe ones, the easy ones. The kind that just a little nudge and they fall into the kingdom. And somebody, you know, many of us are in that category because we're not necessarily gifted in evangelism. And somebody went out and they were sitting on a bus bench and uh, waiting for the bus. Somebody sat down. They got in a conversation. The next thing you know, they were praying with the individual to receive Christ. And it was so easy. It just happened in minutes. And they wrote me a letter and said, I can't believe it. It was just like you said. Pray for an easy one. I got one. There's people out there just waiting. Go out and look for them. And all the while be mindful, will you, that God is with you. As many as received Him. Many are receiving Him. Don't you want to be a part of it? It's so thrilling. Thomas Fuller said this, Why should we fear that the arm of God should be short for others that could reach us? And He wants to reach others through you with the same kind of power. I think of Paul when he went to Philippi. You remember he received the Macedonian call for help. And he went on over to Philippi and to a whole new territory in Europe. And he's into town. And, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? He ends up down by the riverside with some people that are worshiping God to the best of their ability but don't know God through Jesus Christ. They have hearts sort of toward God. And there's a woman there by the name of Lydia. And she begins to listen to Paul's message. And the Bible is very clear to record this about Lydia, that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You don't have to do it. It isn't you opening anybody's heart. You just share with the joy you have as a Christian, with the knowledge you have as a Christian. It is God's end in salvation to open someone's heart. Now, if you just keep moving from one to the next and let God take you to the Lydia's whose hearts He intends to open, then you'll have the thrill that Paul did as he watched her whole household come to Christ. They moved their operation over to her house. There he took a foothold in Europe, planted the gospel flag, and revival broke out. Next thing you know, the Philippian jailer is standing trembling in front of Paul after the earthquake and the chains falling off, and he's shouting, What must I do to be saved? He's probably thinking about what he'd heard about with this Bible study with Lydia and the gang and the revival and all of this. And now he sees an earthquake to sort of cap things off in a personal way for him. God is sort of shouting at him, I'm moving your way, pal. I'm shaking up your jail. Now you're shaking all over. Now do you just open up. 
And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and the whole household came to Christ. Wonderful. See, I believe that this is what drove Paul. That he understood there are many who will receive him. There are many whose hearts the Lord intends to open. And if we will go out and speak the truth, we'll, we'll run into them. And we will have the joy of praying with them to receive Jesus Christ. Or the joy of sowing the seed to hear later that they will come back to us and say, You remember what you told me? Well, I know him now. Oh, how I thank you for being bold enough to share. There are many who are receiving him, but we cannot stay with this. We've got to go on. Let's talk about the terms for receiving him. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, let's begin here by saying this. This is a statement of utter reliance. Utter reliance. To believe in his name carries the idea of receiving him for all that he has revealed himself to be in the Bible. The name, the concept of the name, it has to do with him, who he is, his person. So that you don't get saved, make this distinction in your mind, you don't get saved just by believing the truth about Jesus Christ. That's not how you get saved. You get saved by placing your trust in Him utterly. You place your trust in Him. He saves you. Not the truth about Him. He saves you personally. He becomes the object of your faith so that it is Him that saves you. Whatever else you hear in the message, don't miss that. It is Him. You come and you trust Him. And then He gives you the right to become a child of God. This belief is trusting in Him. It is clinging to Him, the person. It's relying on Him to rescue you from your utterly helpless state in sin. And that is exactly what salvation is all about. It is a rescue job. And He comes in and He rescues you. So as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, it is a reliance issue on him. You must receive him as the Bible reveals him. You cannot parcel him out. You cannot take him as a great teacher and leave the rest. Or you will not be saved. There are many Jesuses out there in the world that have been articulated by different religions and different cults and so on. You must take him as the Bible reveals him. Now the Mormons, they take the Bible and they add Pearl of Great Price and the Book of Mormon to it. And they distract you with those two books from taking him as the Bible solely reveals him. The Jehovah Witnesses do the same thing. And then they have produced their own New World Translation where they have actually changed the text and filled it with lies. So you cannot then through their system come to the Jesus Christ as the Bible presents Him. You must take the Scriptures alone and study Him there and you receive Him in all of His offices in Scripture. That is the only way He will come to you. Don't forget, He saves you. You don't will yourself to be saved by Him. You're not in control of this thing. He saves you. If that is the case, which it is, you must be saved then on His terms. Because He, as an individual person, is the one who comes and rescues you. It is He that gives you safe passage to heaven. You must come on His terms as the Bible reveals Him. And how does the Bible reveal Him? To give you three thoughts here of His three offices mainly seen in the Bible. 
The Bible reveals him, first of all, as the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate prophet. Every person in the world who's seeking for God down some avenue through philosophies and religions and all, they become captivated by this idea of prophets. And you read of this great prophet and that great prophet. To speak of Christ as the Bible does, he is the ultimate prophet. There is no one beyond him in terms of having come to share the truth from God. What he has received of God, he manifests to men. Could you turn to John 14.10 with me and we can explore this idea together. He says in John 14.10, Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, rather... It is the Father living in me who is doing this work. It is God speaking through him. Everything that he has told us is to become the final word on life and salvation and faith. Ask yourself the question if you believe that his word delivered in his sermons and the gospels is to you the final authority of faith and practice. Yes, there is more revelation that comes on through the apostles' writings, the epistles. But if you will notice, all the things in the epistles are commentary, really, on what was given by Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus is the final, ultimate prophet. Anything beyond that only further explains the things that he taught and capsulized forms in the Gospel. So he is the ultimate prophet. He is the final authority for all faith and practice. Now, Satan has sent many prophets into the world. Of course, the Bible talks about the broad road that leads to destruction. What do you think that broad road is that leads to destruction? Most people conceive it to be a sort of a wild, loose, partying, booze, alcohol, drug-filled lifestyle. The broad road that leads to destruction. May I suggest to you today, that is not the broad road that leads to destruction when Jesus talks about it. The broad road that leads to destruction is the way of religion. It is all the other religions of the world. That is the broad road that leads to destruction. And the devil basically has sent many prophets into the world, and they stand out there near the straight and narrow and hold up their signs. Ever come to the airport in a strange country, and nobody knows who you are, so they all stand there holding up signs? and you look for your sign, they stand there like that so they can direct you and take you somewhere. Well, the false prophets sent by the devil into the world, they stand over near the straight and narrow and hold up their sign, and it says, heaven this way. And you go, oh, really? Or nirvana this way. Or enlightenment this way. And you stand and you see them all lined up. Well, there's that way and that way and that way and that way. wonder which way I'd like to take. Well, I'll try that. You go a little way down that road. Man, this is very difficult and weird. I'll back up. You come back and check out the signs again. You go on. That's the broad road that leads to destruction. It's the way of religion. And there are many false prophets standing out there that are saying, Heaven, this way, when it is not that way. There was Mohammed. There was Buddha. Joseph Smith. Charles Taz Russell. Ron L. Hubbard. All these people. They are false prophets. They're pointing the way to eternal life. But it's a dead-end street. It's a broad road. Turn to Matthew 7, could you? Let's look at our Lord's actual words on this. I love how the Bible clarifies everything. We live in the most confusing world. Nothing could be more confusing than wondering which way to eternal life. The Bible clarifies everything. It exposes these matters. 
When you're in the midst of a quest and a search and you're exploring all these different things, different religions, you come to the Bible and it just sets everything in its place. You know why? Because God is very concerned that you get to heaven and that you are not misled. Jesus, as the ultimate and final prophet from God, says this in Matthew 7, 13, Enter by this narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way, which leads to eternal life, and there are few that find it. Then this, don't disconnect this, Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What he's really talking about there is a prophet dressed in the garment of a shepherd. That's what he's talking about. The wolves in sheep's clothing are false prophets dressed in the garment of a shepherd, pretending to know the way to eternal life, and all the while pointing you right down the broad road that leads to destruction, and sending you down the broad road, all the while you're thinking in your mind, I'm on my way to heaven, I'm on my way to heaven, and you're going directly to hell. That's why he calls them ravenous wolves. Satan has sent many false prophets into the world, but God has sent His only Son into the world as the ultimate prophet. We studied for over two years, I think, the book of Hebrews and how Jesus really is God's ultimate statement on the way to eternal life. We opened up the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by His prophets in the Old Testament, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, or literally in His Son through His Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, and through all, whom also he made the world. Have you ever noticed reading through Matthew that when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, it says the people were astonished at his teaching because he didn't speak like the scribes. He had this incredible authority. Have you ever noticed in Mark 7.37, it says they were astonished beyond measure. Beyond measure. Their minds were blown when he finished teaching. They all just sat back and went, wow. Incredible. You want to know why they were astonished? Because Matthew 13.35 says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. The things that I will teach concerning Jesus, the things that he as the ultimate prophet would teach, would be things that had never been heard since God created the earth and put man on it. And that is why when he was done teaching, people sat back and they were astonished beyond measure. Why? Because he's not just another teacher. He is the prophet sent directly from God to be the mouthpiece of God to lead men to God. And that is why in John 14, 6, he said, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and absolutely no one comes to the Father unless they come through me. And in John 10, 7 through 9, he said, I'm the door of the sheep. What a statement. Listen to this. All who ever came before me, not Old Testament prophets, but the prophets the devil sent, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. Now that is either a statement of the greatest audacity and pride that was ever uttered from the lips of a man, and it was the greatest lie, or it is absolutely true. And it is absolutely true. And all that came before him are indeed thieves and robbers pointing the way to eternal life and lying all the while. You believe in him as the Bible presents him. And the Bible does not present multiple choice salvation. It presents only one way. 
In Acts 14, 12, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved. You can't find another name, another man, who will come and rescue you personally and give you safe passage all the way to heaven. You cannot even find another man who can explain it all the way he explained it and leave you astonished with the light from heaven because there is no other man like that. There is only the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. I don't know who is your prophet or who you've been following. There are a dime a dozen. They show up in Rolls Royces, 13 years old, and baffle everybody until they're gone a few years later. We've seen that. They sit in the lotus position in India with a glazed dead look in their eye, and they act very, very cosmic, like they have the answers. They'll even get into little tiny cases and swimming pools on That's Incredible and show you how they can bend their body like a pretzel and sit down under the water. Amazing and incredible, he's in the water. And he's in a box and he's like a pretzel. And he gets out and he unfolds, you know, like the mechanical man. That's the way to eternal life. I'll get a little glass case myself and squeeze in, you know. Jesus Christ is not like any other prophet that ever came. And know this, he's the only one who rose from the dead. A little girl was facing an agnostic professor once, and he said to the little girl who believed in the Lord Jesus, he said, There have been many who have claimed to be Christ. How can you be sure who told the truth? Which one do you believe, little girl? Without hesitation, the youngster replied, I believe the one who rose from the dead. I like it. No other prophet ever rose from the dead. He is the ultimate prophet. Can you say this? You are the truth. Your word alone, true wisdom can impart. To you I yield my willing mind and open all my heart. He is the ultimate prophet. Let me take you to another one of his offices. He is the ultimate priest. The ultimate priest. Again, we studied this for so long in Hebrews, but we're in John now. He is the ultimate priest. Sent from God to purify men from their sin. On his cross, he went before God as an offering for sin, and by that offering, the guilt of man is removed. And know this, you cannot take him as a prophet and remove him from his cross as the sin bearer. If you take him as a prophet, if you take his teaching, then you must take his cross with him. And if you take his cross with him, you must face your sin, because he went to that cross for your sin and for mine. You cannot say, I accept him as a great prophet and reject his work on the cross. He is the only source of forgiveness for your sin. Do you know that the Bible is the only book of all religious books which presents full, complete forgiveness for your sin? Do you know that? It is the only book found among men in all religions which offers you absolute forgiveness for sin in a manner that is absolutely free. Do you know that? Maybe you don't know that, but that's the truth. And that is why all these other ways are so hard. Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were still without strength in due time, get this, Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. Not a bunch of great religious people who were devout in their own ignorant way, but for ungodly rebels. That's the point. For scarcely will a righteous man, for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's where it all began. He is the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice. J.C. Ryle said, In light of that, we may boldly tell the chief of sinners, even the worst sinners we meet, that Christ loves them. Salvation is ready for the worst of men. If they will only come to Christ, 
If men are lost, it is not because Jesus does not love them and is not ready to save based on his sacrifice as the great and ultimate priest. You see, we can go out and tell anybody, the worst of sinners, that Christ loves them. And you know what this means? It means there is to be no other priest between you and God. If I'm going to take the salvation Jesus brings, I must take him as the ultimate priest. I must cease to trust any other priest. I myself, who am a minister, must never make myself a priest. And I must not look upon any other man as being a priest for me, a go-between between me and God. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate priest. The entire book of Hebrews is dedicated to that main theme. And further, know this. If you will study the Bible, you will find that he is the only priest, watch this, that you can effectively confess your sin to. Now you can go into a booth and confess your sin to a priest, but he has absolutely no power at all to forgive that sin. No power at all. In fact, he wrestles with his own sin. And he thinks of his own sin, even in the booth. He's probably sinning in the booth. Because all men sin in their minds a lot of the time. Well, Jesus Christ is the only priest you can effectively confess your sin to who is not sinning in some booth. He is the sinless, ultimate priest, and that is why John picks this up later and elaborates it in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, effectively cleanse you and forgive you. One day he told a man his sins were forgiven and, and they were all riled up about it. Well, how could you say that? So he had the man get up who was paralyzed and crippled for years and get healed and walk away just to prove that he had the power to do it. And nobody else could do that or has ever done that. He is the ultimate priest. He has proved it in so many ways. He is also the ultimate king. Revelation 17, 14 says that he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Revelation 19, 16 says, And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So know this. You come to the Bible, you find a prophet. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate prophet. You find a priest. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate priest. And he eliminates every other priest from your life as a mediator between you and God. The Bible says there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. All other priests must go. And yet he is not content just to be your priest and just to be your teacher. He will be your king. Or you can have none of him. He is the ultimate king. And here's the question, then, that will determine your eternal destiny. Will you give yourself up, body and soul, to be ruled by Christ? Will you? That's the question, you see, that determines your destiny. That's the question that determines your belief to this point. Don't ever forget the fate of the men in the parable of the minas in chapter 19 of Luke. We don't have time to go into it now, but there are these men in the parable that Jesus taught who said, we will not have this man to reign over us. That is a direct reference to the people that refuse to have Christ to rule over them as their Lord. The end of the parable, they take those men, he says, take these enemies of mine who did want, not want me to reign over them and slay them before me, a reference to being sent into eternal damnation. That is the fate of those who will say, we will not have this man to rule over us. See, it is here you discover, I say, the nature of your belief. If you are not willing to let him be the king in your life, the Lord, he will not come to you as your savior. Don't ever mix that up in your mind. The mere belief in the doctrine about him never saved even one person, not even one person. 
See, if I have a heart condition and you come to me and you tell me I am the world's greatest heart surgeon, let me operate on you and I'll fix you. Well, if I don't let you operate on me, I'm not going to be fixed. You see, and I'll probably die. I must let you go to work on me. I must let you have your way, you see. It's the same way with him. You must let him become your king. And he is the ultimate king because he's ultimately God. The Bible says in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So you receive Christ as your God and King, or you don't receive him at all because he's not going to come into your life unless you ask him to come in on his terms. He won't come. Think of it. You decide you're sick of your sin. You decide you're sick of the emptiness. And now you accept His teaching and you're thankful for His sacrifice. But unless you agree to open your life and let this man Christ, this God-man, rule over you, you can't have anything He offers. Not a thing. That's why Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. You see, it is the Lord... Verse 13 of Romans 10 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What am I saying to you? I'm saying that you must receive him as the Bible presents him or you won't get him at all. John MacArthur tells the story of being at some Hollywood party where he was invited to share the gospel. He got all done and this Muslim fellow comes up to him and he says, I want to receive Christ. He's thinking, incredible, how rare this is, what a moment. So they go into this back room and he prays with the guy to receive Christ. And the guy finishes the prayer and he opens his eyes and he's smiling and he looks up and he says, fabulous, now I have Jesus and Muhammad in my heart. I am the most blessed of all men. And he goes, no, 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 you don't have it right. So that's what we're talking about. You take Jesus as the Bible presents him or you cannot have him at all. So we've been talking about the fact there are many who are receiving him. We've been now discussing the terms for receiving him. Let's just very briefly then talk about the act of receiving him. The act of receiving him. At this point, the question is this. What then must I do personally to be saved? What is the next move I must make? Listen, if you don't know him yet, if you're not a child of God, if you haven't trusted Him personally to personally rescue you and give you safe passage to heaven to forgive your sins personally, then you must make that move. How do you do it? Well, first of all, you must believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says He is. Everything I've been explaining to you. If you believe that, then you must admit that you are a sinner and you must ask God to forgive you. You must admit that. And then you must repent of your sin and turn away from it to embrace Christ. You must turn away from your sin to embrace Christ. And then you must receive Christ into your life as Lord and Savior. You must be able to say, take my life, take it all, body and soul, I'm yours. Rescue me, please, dear God. Forgive me for my sins. Help me to follow you and I will. That's how you do it. And you need to do it now. You need to do it now. I am surrounded, I'm amazed in my life at how much death surrounds us these days. Death is everywhere, and it comes by surprise. A drunk driver plowing into the front of your car. A mystery disease creeps up upon you. And the next thing you know, you're dead and they don't know why. Everything is so uncertain. You need to do it now. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Don't put it off another moment. You don't have 
necessarily a long life to live. You don't have necessarily old age to look forward to. You don't have maybe the days when your bones will ache and be tired so you no longer want a party animal. You may not even have another night. People drop dead of heart attacks today. You know, I used to think these were manipulation tactics. I don't think I have to manipulate you. I think if you're ready and you're ripe and you're open and you want Christ, the time is now. You will open your heart and receive Him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if your heart is burning inside of you and you know it's time to give your life to Christ, you open your heart and repeat this prayer after me and give your life to Jesus Christ. Pray this prayer after me if you want to receive Jesus. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I know that I am a sinner, but I thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn and I repent from my sin now, and I embrace you to receive new life from you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Help me to follow you from this day forward, and I will, by your strength. Amen.